Chapter 19 of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Read by Tom Daly. Chapter 19 Even for a violent ward, my entrance was spectacular, if not dramatic. The three attendants regularly in charge naturally jumped to the conclusion that in me a troublesome patient had been foisted upon them. They noted my arrival with an unpleasant curiosity, which in turn aroused my curiosity, for it took but a glance to convince me that my burly keepers were typical attendants of the brute force type. Acting on the order of the doctor in charge, one of them stripped me of my outer garments and, clad in nothing but underclothes, I was thrust into a cell. Few, if any, prisons in this country contain worse holes than this cell proved to be. It was one of five, situated in a short corridor adjoining the main ward. It was about six feet wide by ten long, and of a good height. A heavily screened and barred window admitted light and a negligible quantity of air for the ventilation scarcely deserved the name. The walls and floor were bare, and there was no furniture. A patient confined here must lie on the floor with no substitute for a bed but one or two felt druggets. Sleeping under such conditions becomes tolerable after a time, but not until one has become accustomed to lying on a surface nearly as hard as a stone. Here, as well indeed as in other parts of the ward, for a period of three weeks, I was again forced to breathe and re-breathe air so vitiated that even when I occupied a larger room in the same ward, doctors and attendants seldom entered without remarking its quality. My first meal increased my distaste for my semi-sociological experiment. For over a month, I was kept in a half-starved condition. At each meal, to be sure, I was given as much food as was served to other patients, but an average portion was not adequate to the needs of a patient as active as I was at this time. Worst of all, winter was approaching, and these, my first quarters, were without heat. As my olfactory nerves soon became uncommunicative, the breathing of foul air was not a hardship. On the other hand, to be famished the greater part of the time was a very conscious hardship. But to be half-frozen day in and day out for a long period was exquisite torture. Of all the suffering I endured, that occasioned by confinement in cold cells seems to have made the most lasting impression. Hunger is a local disturbance, but when one is cold, every nerve in the body registers its call for help. Long before reading a certain passage of De Quincey's, I had decided that cold could cause greater suffering than hunger. Consequently, it was with great satisfaction that I read the following sentences from his Confessions. O oh, ancient women, daughter of toil and suffering, among all the hardships and bitter inheritance of flesh that ye are called upon to face, not one, not even hunger, seems in my eyes comparable to that of nightly cold. A more killing curse there does not exist for man or woman than the bitter combat between the weariness that prompts sleep and the keen searching cold that forces you from the first access of sleep 
to start up horror-stricken, and to seek warmth vainly in renewed exercise, though long since fainting under fatigue. The hardness of the bed and the coldness of the room were not all that interfered with sleep. The short corridor in which I was placed was known as the bullpen, a phrase eschewed by the doctors. It was usually in an uproar, especially during the dark hours of the early morning. Patients in a state of excitement may sleep during the first hours of the night, but seldom all night. And even should one have the capacity to do so, his companion's endurance would wake him with a shout or a song or a curse or the kicking of a door. A noisy and chaotic medley frequently continued without interruption for hours at a time. Noise, unearthly noise, was the poetic license allowed the occupants of these cells. I spent several days and nights in one or another of them, and I question whether I averaged more than two or three hours sleep a night during that time. Seldom did the regular attendants pay any attention to the noise, though even they must at times have been disturbed by it. In fact, the only person likely to attempt to stop it was the night watch, who, when he did enter a cell for that purpose, almost invariably kicked or choked the noisy patient into a state of temporary quiet. I noted this and scented trouble. Drawing and writing materials having been again taken from me, I cast about for some new occupation. I found one in the problem of warmth. Though I gave repeated expression to the benumbed messages of my tortured nerves, the doctors refused to return my clothes. For a semblance of warmth, I was forced to depend upon ordinary undergarments and an extraordinary imagination. The heavy felt druggets were about as plastic as blotting paper, and I derived little comfort from them until I hit upon the idea of rending them into strips. These strips I would weave into a crude Rip Van Winkle kind of suit, and so intricate was the warp and woof that on several occasions an attendant had to cut me out of these sartorial improvisations. At first, until I acquired the destructive knack, the tearing of one drugget into strips was a task of four or five hours, but in time I became so proficient that I could completely destroy more than one of these six-by-eight-foot druggets in a single night. During the following weeks of my close confinement, I destroyed at least twenty of them, each worth, as I found out later, about four dollars, and I confess I found a peculiar satisfaction in the destruction of property belonging to a state which had deprived me of all my effects except underclothes. But my destructiveness was due to a variety of causes. It was occasioned primarily by a pressure of activity, for which the tearing of druggets served as a vent. I was in a state of mind aptly described in a letter written during my first month of elation, in which I said, I'm as busy as a nest of ants. Though the habit of tearing druggets was an outgrowth of an abnormal impulse, the habit itself lasted longer than it could have done had I not, for so long a time, been deprived of suitable clothes and been held a prisoner in cold cells. But another motive soon asserted itself. Being deprived of all the luxuries of life and most of the necessities, my mother-wit, 
always conspiring with a wild imagination for something to occupy my tune, led me at last to invade the field of invention. With appropriate contrariety, an unfamiliar and hitherto almost detested line of investigation now attracted me. Abstruse mathematical problems, which had defied solution for centuries, began to appear easy. To defy the state and its puny representatives had become mere child's play. So I forthwith decided to overcome no less a force than gravity itself. My conquering imagination soon tricked me into believing that I could lift myself by my bootstraps, or rather, that I could do so when my laboratory should contain footgear that lent itself to the experiment. But what of the strips of felt torn from the druggets? Why, these I used as the straps of my missing boots, and having no boots to stand in, I used my bed as boots. I reasoned that for my scientific purpose a man in bed was as favorably suited as a man in boots. Therefore, attaching a sufficient number of my felt strips to the head and foot of the bed, which happened not to be screwed to the floor, and in turn attaching the free ends to the transom and the window guard, I found the problem very simple, for I next joined these cloth cables in such a manner that by pulling downward I effected a readjustment of stress and strain, and my bed, with me in it, was soon dangling in space. My sensations at this momentous instant must have been much like those which thrilled Newton when he solved one of the riddles of the universe. Indeed, they must have been more intense, for Newton knowing had his doubts i not knowing had no doubts at all so epoch-making did this discovery appear to me that i noted the exact position of the bed so that a wondering posterity might ever afterward view and revere the exact spot on the earth's surface whence one of man's greatest thoughts had winged its way to immortality for weeks I believed I had uncovered a mechanical principle which would enable man to defy gravity, and I talked freely and confidently about it. That is, I proclaimed the impending results. The intermediate steps in the solution of my problem I ignored, for good reasons. A blind man may harness a horse. So long as the horse is harnessed, one need not know the office of each strap and buckle. Gravity was harnessed. That was all. Meanwhile, I felt sure that another sublime moment of inspiration would intervene and clear the atmosphere, thus rendering flight of the body as easy as a flight of imagination. End of chapter 19